panel on RNZ National, Lavina Good and Chris Wukaida with me, overrun with responses regarding co-ed versus uh, single sex. If you hadn't, didn't hear, Lavina uh, has a 15-year-old son uh, and where should he go to, single sex or co-ed? So, so much response. We're going we're gonna to do a snap poll. Um, single sex or co-ed? Text me, 2101. What is the preferred Education, uh, and we'll tell you the results at 4:35 here on the panel. Keep them coming. But first, to this Prime Minister Chris Hipkins says Stuart Nash has resigned as Police Minister this afternoon. Megan Woods will be acting Minister of Police. Stuart Nash has resigned as Police Minister following unwise actions in criticising a judge's sentencing and calling his police commissioner mate to ask, "Surely you are going to appeal." Prime Minister Chris Hipkins announced. Nash was not police minister at the time of the conversation, but the government is expected to remain independent from judicial and police prosecutorial decisions. With us is political commentator, former national staffer, Ben Thomas. Kia ora, Ben. Kia ora, Wallace. So, yeah, so uh, uh, great to have you on, Ben. And Nash offered to resign. Hepkins accepted his resignation. And look, you worked in the Attorney General's office, so you'd have some pretty decent knowledge of the rules around this. Ben, what's your take? The, the rule is very simple. Politicians do not get involved in the criminal justice system. They don't. They don't offer advice. They don't offer instructions. They just stay totally clear of criminal prosecutions and criminal appeals um, and as soon as you know as soon as Nash uh, let slip or was proudly proclaimed on radio uh, that he had done that uh, he had to go um, that's all well understood but here we have a person Stuart Nash earlier said look quoting chewing the fat with the guy who was a mate about a decision I thought was very bad I mean, when the police commissioner gets a mate calling and questioning him about the veracity of a case, it's up to him to determine, isn't there room, isn't there any any wiggle room here, Ben? Isn't there any room for nuance? Chewing the fat with a mate. No, absolutely not. at At the point that you raise it, you know, politicians shouldn't even be commenting publicly. Uh, on the outcome of court cases. You know, there is a very good reason that we remove political influence uh, from our criminal justice system um, because, I mean, you know, I'm I'm not saying this is what Stuart Nash did, but where you have politicians, you know, directing or influencing or giving nudges or hints about who should be prosecuted and who should be appealed, that's Banana Republic stuff. Um, Look, Nash made a mistake. It was a bad mistake, but it was a mistake that required, you know, at the at the very minimum that he resigned the police portfolio, um, and I think you know ACT and National Right, he should probably be sacked as a minister uh, because it is just one of those lines that you really can't cross as a minister. Okay, at the very minimum, let's bring our panel on this. But first, before they they come and Ben, can he stay on in, as an MP? Yeah, look, he can sound as an MP. It's a breach of the cabinet manual. Um, you know, I don't think there will be any problem with him staying on as an MP. He's, he's a very good local MP, very dedicated. Um, there might be a way for him to return as a minister as well, you know, say in a new government, but he, sh- he should probably be sacked as a minister. I mean, that, I, th- I think it's, it's relevant that, you know, had he done this 
or had this come to light and he hadn't been police minister, the expectation would be that he was sacked as a minister from whatever that other, those other portfolios okay. were. Uh, Lavina, so this was late breaking news this afternoon. Uh, he let it slip on, it was News Talk ZB, wasn't it, uh, about this uh, phone call. Uh, what's your thoughts on this? Stuart Nash, where the heck were you during the Rob Campbell saga? I just wanted to ask that first of all, because sometimes it's best not to say things that, you know, might not support you. And I honestly believe that, you know, if he hadn't have removed himself, Hipkins would have removed Nash from the role. Um, I'm glad to have Ben on, actually, because I'm interested in Ben's um, opinion and judgment as to whether or not he thinks that uh, Nash should remain in his roles with forestry, oceans, fisheries and economic development because you get the feeling that he said something that he shouldn't have said, he's faced the consequences of it, he's phoned the Prime Minister and said, hey, I'll hand him my resignation on that portfolio but I'm going to still hang on to these other roles. Do you think that conversation took place or how do you feel about him still remaining in those roles? Well, he, he was actually earlier this morning, he was ruling out resigning. So yeah. um, I, I, I think in terms of, we could probably ask some questions about how voluntary the resignation was. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think it is it is germane that had he, you know, he was a minister, but not minister of police when he did this. Um, if, um, if a minister had been found to have to have called the police and sort of queried uh, an appeal, but the police commissioner and queried an appeal, um, that minister would be expected to resign from their portfolio no matter what it was uh, and probably resign as a minister. So I, I would think that the same expectation would hold here. It looks like that's not the route they're going down and that they'll be sort of taking a kind of, you know, kind of pragmatic way out of this. Um, I, I think if you were being a stickler and a purist, you would expect him to resign as a minister wholesale. Hey, Chris. Ian, yeah, no, absolutely right. And the key thing Ben said there is he breached the cabinet manual. You breach the cabinet manual as a cabinet minister, you know, that's that that's pretty serious stuff. And it also coincides in a week where we see the Prime Minister is in no mood to continue on with things which are either political distractions or, or, or political problem childs for him. So, um, yeah, that, that question about um, did he resign or was he resigned, you know, we, we have no suggestion that Chippy is like Muldoon who had every cabinet minister's um, resignation letter in his desk drawer minus a date um, <laughs> not like that but no, he, he couldn't have picked a worst week to do this it was a very bad lapse of judgment just on that actually Ben that lapse of judgment because we've had a series of what some might call poor decision making by people high in leadership is this a, another example of that yeah, I think when you put this together with um, the various lapses that have come to light in terms of the code of conduct for Crown Entity Chairs in particular, um, and you know some of the confusion that's come out with those communications within Te Pukinga, um, you know, sort of telling academic staff to shut their mouths and not saying anything political in a, an election year, there, there does seem to be a lot of confusion about these these conventions and these rules, um, and, and maybe everybody just needs to do a bit of a refresher course. Um, maybe, maybe you know, in New Zealand you can tend to take things a bit lightly, you know, like Nash said, I the mate. I was just showing the fact with a mate. And well, that was my that, point earlier. Is there any leeway for us here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, to uh, is it is it is it a 
hang a fence that he just was chewing the fat with the guy about a decision that he thought was very bad. And some commentators actually said a lot of constituents would have kind of agreed with Stuart Nash on this. Oh, a lot of constituents would have, and, and they're right to question it. And here's perhaps the irony. If he had been the police minister and he had had a lot of feedback about are the police going to appeal this, then his office could, via the office, could have made a legitimate question. We're getting a lot of feedback. I'm being asked whether the police will appeal. Have you? you know, but then it's actually not the police or the police commissioner that do it. Right. It's Crown Law. So, you know, there's steps that could have been done for a legitimate question to be asked, but the way he went about it and then the way sure. he talked about it was just all wrong. I'm sure we'll have more on this, but for now, Ben Thomas, kia ora. Thank you for um, being with us on the panel. Uh, it's 17 past four. Uh, the panel with Lavina Good and Chris Wikaida this afternoon. Now, a group of local and international scientists say climate change did play a role in the devastating rainfall from Cyclone Gabrielle that claimed lives and wrought massive destruction, reports RNZ. Their rapid analysis, the first time something like this has been done, found human-caused warming was driving increased rainfall and made extreme rainfall events more likely. One of the research involved said, quoting, this was a gigantic, gargantuan event, and I have no doubt whatsoever in my mind of the uh, link. With us is Victoria University Climate Change Research Institute, Professor Dave Frame. Professor Frame, welcome. Hi. So, uh, you know, scientists can be cautious before making any official conclusion, and that was one of the things that the, the article said, but what do you think? Yeah, well, we think that the intensity of um, extreme rainfall is going up as a result of climate change because of a well-understood um, physical relationship between uh, water vapour and temperature. And so we'd be stunned if that weren't going on. Um, what we found was that in terms of the uh, frequency of these events, that's a bit harder to bit harder to quantify, <clears throat> and we weren't able to to really pin that down uh, at, th- at this point. Um, so we're going to keep looking at it um, and keep working on it. Uh, but it's it's kind of, we, we wanted to um, be playing a role in anchoring some of the, um, you know, the claims that people make about this. I've, I've seen things on in the media and on social media where people have said that it all is, you know, largely driven by climate change or that it's not yeah. at all linked to climate change. And we just wanted to add a bit of evidence to that conversation. Yeah, and hence this uh, rapid analysis. And also, before we go to our panel, I must say, Dave, there's also, and I don't know whether it's an example of some sort of climate pushback. I mean, it is obviously universally accepted, but there are those who will say, actually, the cause of flooding was also, as I heard the other day in Auckland, blocked drains, uh, leaves blocking the stormwater system and that type of thing? Um, So there are lots of things on the ground that can make these things worse, Um, but the amount of water in the atmosphere is going up because of climate change. Um, The amount of water in the atmosphere relevant to extreme events, that is. Um, But, you know, we know there's a lot to learn about this, and the idea of trying to quantify these things is only about 20 years old. Um, New Zealand happens to have actually a little group who's pretty good at it, um, and uh, and so we we thought we kind of wanted to get on and, and, and say what we could, but but these are rare events, um, and they'll re- remain rare events, but they probably they'll probably become a bit more frequent, and certainly extreme rainfall will become more intense because of climate change. Got it. All right, Lavina. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. I I, um, I think, I mean, Tauranga, like the rest of the country, had a very wet summer and the conversation around our, our whanau and our hapori, our community, was, you know, climate change is, is creating this and Professor Dave has kind of justified that in some way. But I also think we had climate change many, 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 many years ago when we just had the ice age and that was before we had cars and petrol and also used to throw away a third of all the food we produce. So I don't want to freak out the next generation um, coming through. I don't want them to be scared and fearful of of what's happening. But I think it's really good to encourage, like what Professor David just said, like the small changes that we can make as a society and a community. And if that means wasting less. I was in Japan recently where I bought some bananas and they were wrapped in Glad Wrap. And I thought bananas had their own wrapping. So what we can do here to make a difference, I, I think, is a good thing. But I, I think we need to be conscious of, of the fact that statistically it might be coming out now that the precipitation in the atmosphere is greater due to climate change. But if we make our small differences, then maybe we won't freak out the next generation coming through who are a bit frightened, I think, by the future. How would you respond to that, Dave? Do you think that's there's yeah. a fair, fair point or actually we need to have an element of urgency on this? Um, look, I don't want to freak out the next generation either. I've got, I've got kids. I, um, you know, I don't want them to be fearful of the future. Um, I think everybody wants a good future for their kids. Mm. Um, the causes of past climate change in, in ice ages was quite different. That was um, little wobbles in the Earth's orbit. We understand that stuff pretty well. These are we're talking about sort of ten percent ish more moisture in the atmosphere as a rule with these kinds of events. Uh, when, it, when it's really super saturated, you know, there's about 10% more, um, more moisture in the atmosphere. So we're talking on that kind of scale usually. Um, and it's not that the, you know, the event is not caused by climate change. Climate, climate change is a contributing factor to it. Right. Um, but, yeah, okay? Yep, no, good. Thank you, uh, Dave. All right, uh, Chris. How do we deal with those who say, and picking up on your point there, that these are rare events, that people refer to other rare events that we've had? And you know, I've seen lots of reference to what you know, 1936 and, and 1968, obviously with the storm that caused the Wahine and 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 Bola, those that were caused by similar events, you know, tropical cyclones or ex-tropical cyclones, you know, coming in from the from the from the northeast, that this is just part of our longer history, and we're, we're not remembering our past. It, it it is part of our history, and and these events have happened in the past, and that's very much what we're saying. But we're also saying that the intensity of of, of these events is in general becoming uh, they're becoming more intense because of well understood physical relationships between water vapor and temperature. So there's more water in the atmosphere to rain out when these things hit. And when they hit the when they hit the land, they start to rain. And when they hit the mountains, they get squeezed out like a sponge. Uh, and, and these are colossal amounts of water. And um, it's not the case that these things are going to happen all the time or that climate change is, is the sole cause of them. They have existed in the past. And, they, you know, we know that. Um, but it's a question of trying to quantify it so that we can manage it better as we adapt and as we renew infrastructure and as we, um, see, you know, we, we revisit the patterns of settlement, we um, increase our population and all these other things, it's just something we need to be aware of and run alongside. Very good to have you on, Professor Frame. Kia ora. Thanks, uh, as always, for your time. That's uh, Victoria University Climate Change Research Institute there, uh, Dave Frame, uh, saying that, uh, well, a group of local and international scientists saying that climate change did uh, 
play a role in the massive rainfall from Cyclone Gabrielle. 24 past four. Keep uh, your texts coming on the poll this afternoon. A snap poll. We've just been inundated with response on the back of Lavina Good's I've Been Thinking. Uh, should her 15-year-old son go to a single-sex school or a co-ed school. We'll have the percentage, we'll have the response for you at 4.35 and some of the enormous feedback. And we'll come back to this later in the week with uh, an educationalist. But to this, we come back to this. Last week we talked about the Potter Brothers confectionery allegedly just covering other brands in their chocolate and selling them as handcrafted. Now, now they've admitted to doing that in a written statement. They said, quoting at that time, and in the period immediately following, one of our processes involved hand-coating a bulk product which was only commercially available to make our own pineapple chews. However, 50% of of our other fillings were made fully in-house. And today we have 16 products in our range and 80% of the fillings are made by us fully in-house. So uh, what do you got? Pineapple lumps, bulk bought, and then covered in your own chocolate. International IP lawyer Kate Duckworth is with us. Kia ora, Kate. Kia ora, Wallace. Thank you for having me back on the show. (laughs) Now they've admitted to it. What are your thoughts of this statement from an IP law perspective? Yeah, honesty is the, the best policy here. But, and you used the word before. Honesty would have been the best policy to begin with, and it was disingenuous to wrap uh, pineapple lumps, bolt brought lollies from other producers, wrap them in their own and call them handmade. And I, I think people would feel a, a bit ripped off that that was actually the process when they think they're buying this lovely local product. I said I've now changed it to small batch uh, instead of handmade and the packaging and website has been amended. I'm just thinking though, it raises a moral quandary. I was talking to my uh, wife about this last night. Uh, if you if you melt down a peanut slab and you put it in a different mould, is it your chocolate? And is it handcrafted? No. Well, I mean, you used your hands, presumably, and hopefully you'd wash them first. But, yeah, it's, it, it doesn't have the right feel. I think that that's what it is about this one. It, it doesn't feel right. And the, the legal question is, what would the average person think? And I think when you use words like handmade, small batch, handcrafted, people do expect it to be your own and, and that uh. Yeah. What do you what do you th- what do you think, Lavina? Uh, someone just actually the comments are quite interesting. It says, "Who cares if it tastes good? That's fine with me." Uh-huh. I think I'm kind of with Kate Duckworth on this one. It doesn't seem very candid or even sincere. Just a few weeks ago, one of my kids went on a school camp, and I bought some chocolate brownie and I sprinkled on some um, icing sugar and claimed it as my own. But hey, I didn't sell it. I gave it away. Huh. And now I'm thinking, you know, if you if you want to um, profit from it and you want to mislead people in some ways about whether or not it's handmade, if I'm going to buy a product that's handmade, I don't necessarily want them to buy a packet of lollies and, and cover it in chocolate because I could do that, Wallace. I'm more than capable of doing that any day of the yeah. week. <laughs> uh, what about you, Chris? There's a couple of things that came to my mind. One is artisan chocolates and handmade chocolates tend to be incredibly expensive. Um, and the argument is, you know, the handmade all the time, all the all the love, all of the black magic that goes into to making them as as whizzy as they supposedly are, is what what were these um, charged out at? What was the price of you know having 
chucked a bit of extra chocolate on top of something you bought from the Foursquare. Um, and what, was that a little bit of a, a swizz there? And the other thing is, actually, the idea of improving them with better, darker chocolate is good because I remember them when they had what I consider to be far superior chocolate on them than they do now. Have you eaten them? Um, these ones, no, I haven't. But I remember what they used to be like, and we actually had some in our office. Good. We've got a lolly jar in the office, which I frequent far too often. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And... I had some just a couple of hours ago, and I thought, man, the chocolate on these is wishy-washy compared to what I remember. And I thought, mm, yeah, improving the chocolate, that sounds like a good idea. But actually, just say that that's what you've done. Right. So, yeah, yeah, final final thought, Kate? Point. Well, well the, a lot of what we think is chocolate is not chocolate. It's something called coverture. Uh, and a lot what? of cheaper chocolates are made of that. And it, it's not made with cocoa or cacao at all. So I think that's probably what Chris is getting at, is that he's had some some lollies or some chocolate. It's actually not chocolate, it's oh, This is a minefield. What's the cheaper chocolate called again, Kate? Coverture. And it's often made with animal fats or, or cheaper fats rather Coverture. than these high-quality ingredients. So that's extraordinary. So does that take us full circle back to Potter Brothers actually having a point that they have chocolated these sweets? Yeah, they've actually yeah. they've actually improved them. They they're the ones but, that have chocolated them. But is the half truth okay? I I want to know the truth <laughs> and the whole truth about what I'm eating. Good on you, Kate. Thanks, uh, thanks as always. That's uh, IP lawyer uh, Kate Duckworth. It is four thirty. Just a smattering of your responses regarding uh, schools. Co-ed, of course, single sex is so English. Uh, not the schools in Germany, France, Holland, Spain and Belgium are vastly co-ed. When I asked my friend in Italy whether the kids wore uniforms, she shrieked with laughter. So, Wallace, girls would be distracted. Girls would have distracted you from your beakers in chemistry. Do girls distract you from your work now? I think it teaches both sexes can study the same stuff and sometimes girls might get higher marks or is that a problem for you too? I went to co-ed and found the girls and boys hung out in their own sex groups a lot. They have lifelong friends of your own gender, do not remember any problems and it was a large college, says Heather in Tauranga. And another one here, single sex. They just get on with it. Um, so uh, that is the panel poll, single sex or co-ed. You find That's that an interesting one, though, Wallace, because going back to something else Dr. Mum said to me earlier today yeah. was that the worst behaviour, the worst playground behaviour and bullying standover tactics she saw on two different occasions at different schools was single-sex girls' schools. Really? Yep. Interesting. That's because they didn't have any boys, Chris. I very wasn't there, I cannot comment. Yeah, same. Very interesting. All right, so that's the poll. Single sex or co-ed. We'll have the results for you in four or five minutes' time.